Hello listeners, hello Colonel Clune. My name is Eddie Rowe, and this is my podcast on the impact of gunpowder weaponry in the modern world. This is my first time doing a podcast or really, really any audio presentation, but I figured for my very last project of History 300, it was beneficial for me as a big proponent of the growth through discomfort idea that I would step out of my my own comfort zone and try something I've never done before. So bear with me through my learning curve and despite my inexperience, I will nevertheless give it my best shot. So my deep dive project one ended in the Korean peninsula in the 13th century, talking about the important role of gunpowder in the diplomatic relations between Korea and Japan. And following gunpowder's success, and introduction in East Asia, other parts of the world understandably quickly caught on to the uses of gunpowder technology. And weaponry consequently grew at an extremely quick pace. But really where I think the next major leap in the history of gunpowder happened was in the early 1800s with Leonard Euler and his contributions toward truly understanding the physics and science behind the uses of gunpowder. Now, there certainly were attempts to control the explosions within the barrel of a gun or a cannon, starting in the 1500s uh, through changing the shape and size of the gunpowder grains. But when the moment people began to plot out the trajectory of a bullet using mathematical equations and were able to accurately predict how much this saltpeter would change the muzzle velocity by this much, or how the barrel would react if the grain size was hexagonal or three to six eighths of a centimeter was when humanity really took full reign of gunpowder and used it in many means. And we can see that gunpowder really impacted so many other areas of society, not only physically, like it did in uh, the form of Anfo or Rakarok in mining, but in second and third order effects as well, like the changes in the education of officers. Uh, And this brings me to my thesis, that the modern world's effort and eventually success to truly understand the mechanics of ballistics and the efficient use of gunpowder touched not only the world militarily, but also in the facets of everyday life. Leonard Euler was a Swiss 18th century mathematician and engineer who made a lot of impact in naval design and fluid propulsion. He made very significant contributions in reducing ship oscillations and using celestial bodies and mechanics to determine longitude at sea, but his contributions toward interior ballistics relative to the other work that he did was was pretty unknown. And not only that, but the way in which he contributed to our understanding of a a bullet's flight path is pretty humorous and unconventional as well. So in 1738, his close colleague and mentor, Daniel Bernelli, had published a famous fluid dynamics text titled Hydrodynamica, which included, among many, many other experiments, 
a test involving firing a small artillery piece and then timing and measuring the trajectory of that bullet. And using this experiment, Bernelli was able to calculate the muzzle velocity of the gun. Well, four years after Bernelli published Hydrodynamica, Benjamin Robbins, who was a fellow scientist and sort of Bernelli's rival at the time, published a book called New Principles of Gunnery that used uh, the same experiment but didn't cite Bernelli in the work. And not only that, Robbins used a different pressure constant and ignored a lot of other factors and came up with a muzzle velocity that was an order of a magnitude off from Bernelli's experiment. And it seemed like Robbins was right and Bernelli was wrong because Robbins had developed a tool, a measuring device that very accurately measured the bullet trajectory and velocity. Well, Euler was not only extremely ticked off that Robbins had plagiarized his friend's work, but that the results were so radically different and incorrect. So Euler set out to disprove Robbins and point out every single detail and thing that Robbins did wrong in his calculations. And there were, to sum it up, there were five central parts of the experiment that Euler pointed out were wrong. One, Robbins had used an instantaneous explosion constant instead of a finite one. Two, he ignored the gunpowder particles left in the barrel in his equation. Three, he ignored the air resistance in the barrel. Four, he used an accurate and disproven law uh, to calculate the amount of gas compression in the barrel. And five, he miscalculated the pressure loss due to the difference between the projectile and barrel diameters. So putting all these factors back into the model, Euler actually proved that Bernoulli's muzzle velocity was actually more accurate and closely related to the trajectory that Robbins' instrument had measured. So in a, in a pretty petty act of revenge for his friend, Euler derived, derived several comprehensive models and equations for understanding interior ballistics. And more impressively, all Euler really used in deriving his results were fairly, fairly simple calculus, Newtonian calculus concepts. I was actually able to find a copy of his work, uh, New Grundsatz der Artillerie, online. And while I may not be able to pronounce the title of the paper, I was actually able to follow along with his numbers and equations, despite not being able to read any of the commentary. And this was an absolutely crucial aspect of his work. His contributions sparked gunnery discourse all over the world. We see the Austrian military setting Euler's work to optimize the length of their artillery barrels. We see the Prussian army developing new mortar rounds. Uh, translated versions of Euler's work in French and English textbooks. His work was being copied and used all over Europe. And not only that, but these militaries realized that this is, a, this is valuable information for officers of their militaries to know. The French Regimental Artillery School and the Austrian Military Academy and even, even Great Britain's artillery leadership, all by the late 18th century, 
deemed this knowledge so important that they incorporated calculus and physics into the education of their officers. And we see it even today at USAFA with the focus in STEM education. Uh, now, I learned as an OR major maybe a little more math than the core cur- curriculum offers by taking Calc 3 and Diff EQ, but uh, nevertheless, I was able to follow along with Euler's calculations and appreciate the significance of it. So it's easy to see that once the science behind ballistics and gunpowder was cracked, the uses of it exploded dramatically. It's not surprising that at a certain point, as our knowledge of a substance becomes deeper and deeper, and we start truly manipulating it to make it more powerful and effective, there comes a certain threshold where the substance's maximum limitations no longer really meet our expectations. And this is exactly what happened with the black powder version of gunpowder. What started as the fire drug of immortality in China had sort of reached its explosive limit by the mid-1800s. And coincidentally, it was at this time in 1845 that Christian Schombein, a German chemist, happened to dip cotton fibers into a fuming combination of nitric and sulfuric acids and find out, through nearly burning his house down, that they became extremely explosive when dried. Now, Gunpowder had always been a combination of saltpeter and an oxygen-rich fuel like nitrate, but they were always a mixture of two distinct separate chemicals. Sean Bain, on the other hand, had effectively joined the nitrate and carbon together on a molecular level. He called this uh, nitrocellulose because it was formed from the nitrate and carbon liquid substance and the cellulose that was in the cotton. And this nitrocellulose material was extremely unstable and required a lot of chemical energy to hold it together. And when the heat from the flaming nitrate carbon substance upset this balance, all the chemicals broke apart, converting to gas and releasing huge, immense energy in the form of heat. And another chemist, Italian Asiano Sobrero applied the same idea, but with glycerin. At first, the only results were in uh, vapor form, but, but when he mixed the glycerin with a chilled version, a chilled mixture of sulfuric and nitric acids, the vapor, was now, uh, the vapor had now slowed down and was in a thick liquid state. Um, he hit this substance with a a hammer and it resulted in a huge explosion. And this was the birth of nitroglycerin, which I would say that's gunpowder's first serious rival. Alfred Nobel, a name that we hear often, took this a step further by placing a small vial of gunpowder in a container of nitroglycerin. Uh, now nitroglycerin goes off uh, through a kinetic reaction, but unlike gunpowder, the it doesn't go off 
when it's lit with a flame or a fuse. So therefore, Nobel could attach a fuse to the gunpowder and light it. And the gunpowder, when it went off, would create the same hammer-hitting effect and cause the nitroglycerin to explode. I would say that this idea of using the force from one explosive, the gunpowder, to create another one, the nitroglycerin, marked the start of the era of high explosives. But however, obviously there were unsurprisingly a lot of problems with this unstable liquid bomb. It was just too risky to use. A small bump in the road while transporting this stuff could level an entire street. And so producers, factories, or transporters weren't willing to to service it. So Nobel scoured many, many absorbents to try and soak up the liquid. And he finally settled on this thing called, or this dirt called kieselger, which is a type of sedimentary rock that easily crumbled into powder. And it absorbed three times its weight in nitroglycerin and made it much more stable. He Nobel rolled these up and, and called these sticks dynamite. And the dynamite industry would pretty much replace black powder, which was what the people were calling the old version of gunpowder by then. And in many industrial businesses, like the mining industry, but I will discuss ANFO and the mining industry later on. But it's safe to say that Nobel had succeeded in financially, in reputation, and in his lifelong journey to find a more explosive substance than gunpowder. Um, In 1888, however, when Nobel realized uh, that a newspaper had mistook his brother's death for his own, and the obituary labeled Alfred Nobel as the merchant of death, um, Nobel realized that the, what kind of legacy he was leaving in the world. And so from then on, he, des- he dedicated much of his fortune to establish prizes for those who make notable contributions uh, in the field of the sciences, literature, and wo- world peace, which are the Nobel Prizes we hear so much about today. So while I was talking about dynamite, I mentioned that Nobel used this sedimentary rock powder called Kieselger to absorb the nitroglycerin and make it more stable. Well, along with that mixture, Nobel also used uh, small amounts of what was called ammonium nitrate to further stabilize the compound. And ammonium nitrate is a substance that's commonly known as being used as fertilizer, but when it's mixed with fuel oil, it actually becomes an explosive called ANFO, commonly used for large industrial projects like mining or tunneling. And mixing ammonium nitrate into dynamite was pretty common practice through the 1900s. And in 1950, the ANFO that we see today uh, was truly introduced into commercial blasting. And so far, it seems like there's a pretty clear linear progression with the development of gunpowder. You know, black powder was trumped by dynamite, which is now being dethroned by ANFO. But 
I want to make it clear that all three substances are still being produced today, and all three serve unique purposes. And in a way, it's sort of like ANFO is going back to the older technology of black powder, um, the older technology of mixing solid compounds together. But obviously, chemically, it's a, it's a much more complicated process to find the right combination of ammonium nitrate fuel oil than it is with black powder. But going back to the statement about um, the linear progression of explosives, I want to note that while black powder, nitro explosives, and ANFO may not be direct relatives of each other, there definitely are evolutionary prototypes that sort of either died out or contributed to the development of one of those three explosive types. And specifically, I want to talk about a predecessor of ANFO and a competitor to the nitro nitro-based explosive, um, which is called a, uh, which is a substance called racarock. And racarock is a mixture of nitrochlorate and nitrobenzene, and a type of sprangle explosive, named after the chemist who created these mixtures of strong oxidizers and fuel. And it's most famous for being the two hundred forty thousand pounds of substance that destroyed the flood rock in New York City in 1885, which created the Hellgate, was coined, uh, which was named the Hellgate, and opened up a new place for ships to reach harbor. And the story behind that explosion is certainly fascinating itself, but I want to focus more so on the fall of Rackerock and how it uh, fell short of expectations and its competitor, the nitroglycerin-based dynamite. And it seems that from reading about it, or I guess for you listening about it, the explosive definitely did its job and could do its job as a commercial explosive. Rackerock was definitely advertised as an industrial mining tool because nitroglycerin had a monopoly over the military market. And the substance was global too, with uh, a US company called Divine's Rackerock being responsible for the flood rock explosion while an Australian company named the Rand Drill and Rackerock Company selling to mines and quarries in Victoria and New Zealand. But by the 1920s, Rackerock's popularity began to fizzle out. And given that ANFO had still 30 more years before it would really be used, uh, ANFO was used in the 1950s, it's a little puzzling to see why this substance lost its appeal to the public. But um, after looking at it, I think there are a few key factors that led to its failure. First, the price of the nitro-based explosives, dynamite, fell uh, quickly and steadily during the late 1800s and early 1900s, removing uh, one of the few advantages that Rackerock had, which, um, which was that it was cheaper. And while Rackerock had more explosive power than black powder, it wasn't as effective as dynamite. So when the nitroglycerin could literally provide more bang for its buck, the popularity of its Rackerock competitor declined. Uh, second, during the same time, the ventilation systems in mines improved drastically, again, taking away another advantage that Rackerock supposedly had, which was that its fumes were less noxious than the, the nitro explosives. Third, uh, while in the flood rock explosion, 240,000 pounds of Rackerock was used uh, 
It also needed 42,000 pounds of dynamite as a primer to that explosion. So maybe the added difficulty of needing another explosive was a problem. But info today requires a nitroglycerin-based primer, and it's pretty popular, so maybe not. But I think this last uh, last point is the biggest argument against the, for the decline of Rakarok, and it's that um, the fall of Rakarok coincided with World War II or World War One. So, and with uh, the war picking up, there certainly would have been more attention towards the production of nitro explosives. So it's likely that uh, that booming market swallowed the need for Rakarok. And after the war, it was never able to gain traction afterwards. But nevertheless, Rakarok exemplifies great attempts by manufacturers to provide cheaper and healthier, healthier in air quotes, alternatives to nitro-based explosives. And it shows how much gunpowder and innovations and explosive technology uh, impacted the commercial and industrial world. From Leonard Euler to Alfred Nobel to Rakarok, innovations in the science behind explosives sent and, pun intended, shockwaves throughout so many aspects of history. Leonard Euler, through his discoveries, reshaped the education and training of the officer corps of pretty much every military at the time. And it's something us USAFA members still see today. Uh, Alfred Nobel changed the world forever, not just through dynamite, but through his realization of his impact and his consequent contributions to the intellectual community in the form of the Nobel Prize. And Rakarok, Although its physical failure led to the birth of ANFO and greatly impacted the mining industry, it's absolutely shocking and puzzling and a little bit scary to think that there are so many positive world impacts that all came from the desire to put two chemicals together and to create the most chaos possible. But maybe that's the appeal of gunpowder. Its initial goal may be to destroy, but its second and third order consequences are to create good in the world. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast and the content and the perspective I presented as much as I had researching and writing and creating it. Thank you.